We are going to have our scripture reading come from Colossians 1. I'll explain more about that in a minute. Miss Renee, would you come and do our scripture reading? And then I'll pray and we're going to get right to work. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 25. 20. 20. Yeah, you got it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was was sorry. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the scriptures. And God, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote that all scripture is profitable for us. And uh, sometimes, God, when we come across a story uh, like the one we're about to dive into, uh, we can maybe scratch our heads a little bit and say, how, how is this helpful? How is this profitable? And so, God, I'm just asking uh, humbly that you'd send your Holy Spirit and let your words be profitable to us today. We don't want to just hear an interesting story. We don't want to just get some information. We really want to have our lives transformed by you, by the gospel, by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, as I always do, that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And may all of us have soft and teachable hearts. We pray today in Jesus' good name. Amen. Have you ever had that experience where uh, you found a photo of yourself? Maybe, you know, it was in an old drawer or maybe you got tagged in Facebook on a photo that is just not the most flattering photo of you. Anybody ever had that experience? You ever accidentally taken one of those selfies when you're opening your phone and it's like shooting up and you look like, a, like the sea witch from The Little Mermaid or something like that? Just, just one of those really unflattering photos. You're at a barbecue, like the one that Jim and Shelly hosted last weekend and you're like mid-bite of a hot dog and you got mustard and someone takes that photo, right? How do you feel when that photo shows up? Not, not good? You're like, delete, unlike? Can we unfriend? So, you know, that, those types of photos. What if, now I want you to imagine, what if someone took that photo of you and they blew it up really big? And they made like posters. They printed a lot. And then they started putting like information like about you on, on that poster. Like, this, this is Cameron, and uh, Cameron loves, you know, puppy dogs, and he likes to kick them, and he, uh, his favorite color is, like, bright pink, and he, his favorite band is Justin Bieber, and, like, and they, and they started hanging these, you know, all not true. Cameron would never kick a puppy dog, right? You do like Justin Bieber, though. That's fine. No judgment. Uh, Right? But then they started going around like putting these posters up everywhere about you with this unflattering photo and this untrue information. And they're going around spreading this campaign and they're hanging up posters at your work and in your neighborhood and on billboards and on light poles. How, how, how would you feel if someone did that to you? Not good. Yes, thank you. Would you, would you feel like, hey, could, could someone fix this, please? Could someone change? Like, you're, you're misrepresenting me. That's not 
that's not my image. That's not really what I look like. And that's, that information, that's not true about me. It's either misleading or incomplete or, or, or just flat out untrue. What, what would you want to do? What would you want to say? How would you feel? Now, how, thank you. Yeah, sad, upset, frustrated. Now, how do you think God feels when people spread misinformation about him? Half-truths, partial truths, an unflattering portrait, an an incomplete image. How do you think God feels about that? So we're going to look at this today because when we talk about this idea of of God's image, this idea of idolatry and statues and God's image, it comes up in our passage today and it just raises all sorts of questions. How How do we know what God is like? How do we know what's the image of God? What's the picture of God? How do we know what's true about God? How do we know if there are leaders out there saying things or publishing things or writing things and then they're just not really true about God? What do we do with that information? That's going to lead to the big idea for today. So here's, 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 my, here's my proposition. For those of you in this room right now, you're here, you're at church, I, I would guess that the biggest danger to your spiritual well-being is not atheism or full-blown apostasy. I'm not all that worried, I don't know everybody in here, but I'm not all that worried that you're going to run out of here and and just become an atheist or renounce your faith 100%. But I think that a bigger danger to us as followers of Jesus is that we would worship God as we want him to be instead of worshiping God as for who he truly is. That's my my big idea. That's what we're going to see happening in this story today. And that's actually a very relevant concern that I have for us as followers of Jesus in our part of the world, in our era. We got a lot to get through. Let's do this. Let's dive right in. Chapter 17, starting in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim. That's the northern part of Israel. He lives in the hills, whose name was Micah. Can everyone say Micah? I just wanted to give you the opportunity to say an Old Testament Hebrew name that you could actually pronounce. I wanted you to get a, I wanted you to get a win today, okay? And he said to his mother, hey mom, you know that 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which I, you, you uttered a curse? I heard you saying some bad words about the, the, the big, big pile of money that got stolen from you. You also said it in my ears. Yeah, behold, uh, the silver's with me. I, I took it. All right, we're off to a rip-snorting start here. Mom, I heard you cussing and swearing because someone stole like a lot of money from you. It's like, it's like you know, the equivalent of like six, seven million dollars in today's wages. By the way, I remember as a kid, I, I stole some money from my mom's purse. I'm guilty I did that. She never had six or seven million dollars laying around to steal. I don't know what kind of mom this is, but, but I, I'm the one who took it. And his mom said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Thank you for coming clean and telling me. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I'm going I'm to dedicate this silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. And everyone's like, oh, that's so sweet. Good job, mom. To make a carved image and a metal image. And everyone, like, you hear that needle scratching across the record. Like, wait a minute, hold on. You're going to make a, a statue with it? I'm, like, I'm no Bible expert, but I read the top 10 list. I'm pretty sure that was like number two of what you're not supposed to do. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, not all 1,100, by the way, And gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, like both. And it was in the house of Micah. And the the man Micah had a shrine. In the Hebrew, that word that's translated as shrine, it's actually two words. It's bayat Elohim, house of gods. 
He had a house filled with gods. He's got his own little mom and pop shop of religion in the hills of Ephraim. And he made an ephod. That's the the garments that the priest would wear. That was like the kind of fancy official garments. He made an ephod and household gods. And he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. By the way, we're going to look at three major problems today. (laughs) Only three. I narrowed it down to just three. But the first one, if you're taking notes, is self-focused worship. That's the first problem, self-focused worship. And, and just in case we were wondering, uh, uh, you know, what the author of Judges thinks about all of this, notice verse six, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the author of Judges says, yeah, this is kind of head-shaking in terms of foolishness and rebellion and just unfaithfulness to God. So there's Micah and his mommy. Now, enter character number two, this Levite. There was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah. Now that's farther south. He was of the family of Judah and he was a Levite. You guys know about the Levites? You remember what the Levites were supposed to do? The Levites, that was one of the tribes of Israel and their job was to be the priests. They were to lead the worship. Exactly. So that's what he's supposed to do. Now he's not doing that. He's living in Bethlehem. It says he sojourned there. And the young man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. He's just going to travel around to try to find himself and where he belongs. He's got to find, he's a young man. He's setting out. And as he journeyed, well, what do you know? He came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, well, where, where are you from? Well, I'm, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna make to make my way in the world here. And Micah said to him, well, I got an idea, dude. Stay with me and become like a father and a priest to me. <laughs> You're a young man, but I want you to be my father. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year. Remember the 1,100 pieces of silver? That's how I got that math. Uh, and, and I'm going to give you a suit of clothes. I'm going to get a suit. That's pretty sweet. And your living, like room and board, will be taken care of. What do you think this, uh, this young man's going to say? And the Levite, he went in. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man, get this, became to him like one of his sons. Now, hold on. I'm confused because first of all, I thought he was supposed to be like his father, but now it says he's like one of his sons. But also, didn't we just read a minute ago that Micah made one of his sons the priest? What happened to that son? Did they like whack him or did he just like kind of push him? I got a new son now. I got a better priest. Move. This is all sorts of jacked up, okay? It's like an episode of the Kardashians. (laughs) Then Micah said, verse 13, now I know that the Lord will prosper me prosper me. Think about that word. Because I have a Levite as a priest. Never mind the fact that they're completely ignoring all of God's laws and all of God's commandments for how the Levites are supposed to lead worship and how, and never mind the fact that he's leading a worship in a, literally a house full of gods. By the way, this is problem number two, if you're keeping notes, self-focused leadership. Self-focused worship, self-focused leadership. This young man takes his position of leadership for no reason other than just sheer opportunism. Micah made him a deal, an offer he couldn't refuse. Verse 
1 of chapter 18. You guys were killing it. We've made it through a whole chapter already. Here we go, chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel, just in case you forgot already, right? It's still chaos. It's still not good. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan, that's another one of the tribes, they were seeking an inheritance uh, for itself to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. You'll remember the people of Dan, when the the people of Israel first went into the promised land, the people of Dan, they didn't do what God told them to do. They didn't move into the country they were supposed to move into. They didn't didn't take possession of the land. So they're kind of just floating around. And they're kind of getting sick of it. They They want some land. They want a place to live. And so the people of Dan, well, they picked out five able men, basically to be scouts from the whole number of the tribe, from Zorah and Eshtael. That's where Samson was from, by the way to go spy out the land and explore it. They're almost like repeating, you know, when they first came into the promised land. Send some spies. Let's go spy out the land and see what's good. And uh, they said to them, go explore the land. And they came, get this, to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah and lodged there. What, what are the odds? Same place. It's Micah guy, man. And now when they were by, this is interesting. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Now, this means one of two things. Either these five scouts somehow knew this guy, like they'd met before, you know, at a, at a Hebrew pub or something. I don't know. And they, they recognized, oh, what are you doing here? Or possibly, it, the, the Hebrew's a little bit unclear. Maybe it just means that they recognized his voice. They're like, oh, I, we heard his accent. He's from the South. He said, shalom, y'all, or like something. And they, and they recognized him. Either way... <laughs> Either way, kind of proud of that one. Either way, they, they turned aside and they said to him like, hey, who brought you here? How are you in this place? What's your business here? We weren't expecting to see you, like striking up conversation. And he said to him, oh, like, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me and I've become his priest. He's kind of bragging up his job a little bit. And they said to him, oh, we're, we need you to do something. We need you to pray. We need you to inquire of God for us. Please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. What does the priest for hire say? Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. You could also translate, under the eye of the Lord can also be translated, you, are, you have the favor of the Lord. Your journey will be hashtag blessed. Your, you know, it just gives them just nothing but good news. Who knew? Who knew that the priest for hire would just give nothing but good news? Verse 7, Then those five men departed, and they came to Laish. This is the, like the farthest north point. At this point, it's not even actually part of the territory of Israel. This is Canaanites. They come to Laish. And they saw the people who were there, how they lived in security. After the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. Okay, so this is interesting. There's, there's the city of Laish and then there's this bigger city of Sidon. And the city of Sidon is very wealthy, a very uh, important cultural city. And the city of Laish, these people kind of live like them. It's like a miniature Sidon. It actually, it's kind of funny. It reminds me, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. And in a lot of ways, Anchorage likes to consider itself like a little miniature Seattle. And they've got coffee and outdoor activities and microbrewing. It's a port town with shipping. Like Anchorage is kind of like that. And then you move to Seattle, like, oh, it's really not. Okay. But um, it's, it's a little bit like that. La- Laish is this city and it's, you know, it's, it's wealthy. 
It's prosperous. They're doing well. They're comfortable. They've got everything they need. They're, they're living like the Sidonians. I mean, the Sidonians, they're doing really well. It's, it's not quite like that, but it's, it's kind of like that. And also notice how it says that the people of Laish had no dealings with anyone. They've got no alliances. They've got no one to come get their back if they were to be, you know, attacked. By the way, uh, this is the third problem we're identifying here. If you're keeping track, this is self-focused living. This is the people of Dan, the people of Israel, the people of God, wanting to live like all the other people live. They want their lives to be comfortable and prosperous and wealthy and just like those Sidonians. So that's our third problem we've identified. Verse, verse 8, when they came to their brothers, they went back to Zorah and Eshtel, and their brothers said to them, okay, what's the word? What do you report? How is it? And they said, arise, let us go up against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Don't be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. Like they're, they're not even thinking anything's going to happen. The land is spacious, for God has given it. God has given it. Oh, ah, the priest told us God has given it into our hands. A place where there's no lack of anything that is in the earth. Of course, God wants us to have everything that our hearts desire. So let's go kill those people and take it from them. So, verse 11. 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtel. They went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan, the camp of Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the, guess where? The hill country of Ephraim. And they came to the house of Micah. Micah's house must have been awesome. Like everyone just keeps going there. It's a party central. Now, those, those five scouts, those, those ones who had originally gone out, they said to their brothers, hey, did you know that here in the, in the house of Micah, there's an ephod, and there's some household gods, and there's a carved image and a metal image? Hey, let's, let's consider what we should do. Let's think about this. So they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite, you know, the priest for hire, and at the home of Micah, and they asked him about his welfare. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Imagine the young Levite, he's just hanging out one day, and all of a sudden, six dudes, 600 dudes, armed to the teeth, showed up at his door. So he's talking to him. Now those 600 men of the Danites, armed with weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, but then, while they're talking, those five men, the original five, who went out to scout the land, they went up, and they entered, and they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. They're stealing They're probably superstitious. They want some good luck charms to go with them on their battle. You got to remember while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. Let's just say the priest was distracted, okay? The priest was distracted. You got 600 guys with knives and nunchucks and whatever. Probably didn't have nunchucks. That's from Japan. And they went into Micah's house. They took all the stuff and the metal image and the priest said to them, wait, 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 what are you doing? Hold on, Stop. And they said, keep quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. We want you to be to us a priest and a father. Is it better? Look at this flattery. Is it better for you to be a priest just to the house of one man or to be a priest to a whole tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad because he liked flattery and 
no, had no scruples whatsoever. So he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image, and he went right along with the people. We're back at problem number two again, self-focused leadership. They kind of like, it's kind of like the godfather. They made him an offer he couldn't really refuse, right? But he's happy to go. And so the, the, the priest, Levi guy, is, goes. And they, so they turned, verse 21, they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods out in front of them. That means they put the soldiers in the back. Why? Probably expecting someone to come and say something to them. Soldiers in the back. When they'd gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out. Like, hey, hey, someone just stole our priests and our gods. Let's get an army. Let's get a posse together. Let's chase them down. They were called out and they ran and they overtook the people of Dan and they shouted to the people of Dan, hey, you, Dan, stop. And they turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you come with such a company? And Micah says, I love this. <laughs> you took my gods that I made and my priest and you go away and what do I have left? How do you ask me what's the matter with you? Like, like what do you mean what's the matter with me? You stole my gods. Those, remember those gods that I made? That's a lot of sarcasm there by the writer of Judges, by the way. The gods that I made, you stole. Like, kind of pathetic gods, right? And you stole my priest and you stole my ephod and you stole all my stuff and what do you mean what's the matter with me? The people of Dan said, don't let your voice be heard among us. Like, you, you should probably just shut up. Lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan just kind of walked off. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house with sad Charlie Brown music playing. Oh, man. Poor Micah. What did you expect, Micah? Your priest for hire ran off with the, with the, you know, ran off with the captain of the football team. Like, come on, bro. You should have seen it coming. Verse 27. So the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him. And they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting. And here the people of God struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. Isn't it interesting how the author of Judges actually invites us to sympathize with the Canaanites a little bit there, huh? It was in the valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan, look at what they do. They set up the carved image. They set up the carved image for themselves. And get this, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So Moses, you know, Moses, the great leader of the people of God, some of his descendants are involved in this corrupt worship. That's heartbreaking, is it not? So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God, the house of God, was at Shiloh. There was a house of God, it was in Shiloh, but they set up their own house of God and thus ends the story of Micah and the Danites. What'd you think? Pretty uplifting story, right? I apologize. <laughs> the whole Judges series. Um, let's, let's talk about these problems for a minute here, okay? Because um, I, I could be sarcastic and say, wow, it's going to be really hard to relate these problems to our current day, but it's, it's not. It's pretty easy. Let's talk about self-focused living for just a minute. I go in reverse order. The Danites... They wanted what the other people had, did they not? 
And, and their lives were really focused on, they wanted comfort, security, convenience, pleasure, prosperity, money. They really wanted their lives to be focused on what they wanted, their desires. Now again, where do we live? I know I talk about this often, but I, it's, it's important for us because we predominantly live in the suburbs to the north of Seattle. Do you know what is happening in Seattle right now in the whole region? Have you just, like, but for one indicator, have you noticed property values and prices in the last few years? Is, where's Eric? Are you here? Well, he's a real estate agent. Can you just, like, how's property doing in Seattle? Yeah, he just laughed, okay? Like, can people find houses to buy? Can people afford to, find them, to buy them if they can find them? The answer to that is no. We're in a, in a region of the world that's experiencing unbelievable economic success. We're the, we're the Sidonians. We're the Laishites. And we, the people of God, like the Danites, could be tempted to have our lives be defined by what we want. Possessions, uh, materialism, money, wealth, job promotion, safety, comfort, security. We live in the suburbs, don't we? I mean, most of us anyways, you live in the suburbs. People go to the suburbs to get comfort, convenience, security. I don't want to live in one of those bad neighborhoods. I want to live where there's sidewalks and fences and police and trees. And we, we could very easily fall into the trap of wanting to live our lives completely for ourselves. And by the way, it doesn't have to just be materialism. Maybe you're one of those people who like very anti-materialistic and you want to go out in the woods and camp like a hippie with your patchouli and your hemp blanket and that's all you want in life but your life can still be completely focused on yourself could it not if you if you're that way that's fine i'm not casting judgment i'm just saying it does it doesn't have to all be about you know boats in the in the lake it could be anti-materialism the point is your life could very easily be marked by fulfilling the desires of self instead of like what God calls us to, that our lives are meant to be lived for the glory of God and our lives are meant to be poured out in sacrificial service to others. Let me ask you, who are you pouring your life out for? How much are you pouring your life out for other people versus how much are you seeking to have your life poured into? I'm not trying to be pointed. I'm just trying to ask you an honest question. Are our lives marked by godly, biblical worship of God, service to others, or are our lives defined by our own comforts, our own desires? And by the way, your pouring into others, uh, your Facebook activism doesn't count, okay? Uh, You can like posts and share blogs and articles about all the injustices in the world, and you really haven't done anything anything other than just giving yourself a little bit of an assuaged conscience for like 15 minutes until we collectively decide on what the next thing we're going to be outraged by is, and then you can share those articles too. Now I talk about life-on-life relationship, genuine sacrifice, something that actually costs you. I, I have concern for us as a church if for no other reason the region of the world that we live in the temperature of the culture that we live in, we as the people of God could seek to have our lives, we just want our lives to be like everybody else as opposed to lives defined by the glory of God. But we need to go another level deeper. 
Because it's not just self-focused living, it's, it's, it's cheered on and championed by self-focused leadership. Specifically thinking of this young Levite priest guy who is, again, just the epitome of a bad leader, is he not? He is opportunistic. He is, you know, driven by fear of man and public opinion instead of driven by conviction. One of the reasons why we wanted to do this sermon series in Judges is because there's a lot of talk about leadership, good lessons and bad lessons. This is one of those bad lessons. And let me highlight one thing for you specifically that happens in self-focused leadership. And it's this, it's exactly what the, the young Levite did. It's he never would give anyone bad news. He only told people what they wanted to hear. He only said things of affirmation. He only said things of, you're going to succeed. You're going to do well. Everything is going to be good. Everything was only good news all the time. Friends, I would, uh, I want you to know that throughout the scriptures, one of the things that is the marker of a good leader, of a healthy leader, including even a leader like Jesus himself, is that a good leader is willing to, in love and with grace, deliver hard words to deliver news that you don't necessarily want to hear. To tell you things like, look, you're a screw-up <laughs> in love. <laughs> One of the things I, I, I love, when we do membership interviews, um, if you're not a covenant member of Sound City, would love to invite you to take that step of intentionality, that, that intentional commitment and relationship. But one of the questions I often ask is about being in, in a, you know, biblical community, as I say, hey, when was the last time someone just looked at you in the eyes and told you that your attitude was terrible or your actions were simple? When was the last time someone did that for you? Friends, I hope and I pray that you have leaders and friends, people in your life who are willing to look at you and give you the bad news. Truthfully, with love, with grace. I'm not talking about, you know, beating people up and claiming some sort of, you know, I'm so godly. I went around and told everyone how much they were rotten today. Like, that's not, no, I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about in love, being willing to both give and receive difficult words. Friends, we have in the church in America a, a, a problem of, in my estimation, Judges 17 and 18 uh, proportions of spiritual leaders who don't ever want to give people anything bad, any, any hard words, any tough words. Seems to me like not a, not a day goes by, not a week go by that you don't hear about just like some other preacher, some other author, some other blogger, some other, you know, Christian, whomever. And, and basically they're, they're opportunistic and they're learning how to make money off of people by just telling you all the good things that you want to hear. Five steps to complete victory in your life. Seven ways to have the marriage that Christ wants you to have. You'll never have any troubles or problems. Every day can be a Friday if you just buy my book and I'll tell you how to have a life free from worries and trials and problems. Meanwhile, I was reading the Bible and this guy, his name was, um, um, oh, Jesus. And he said, in this life, you will have trials and tribulations, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You guys remember that part? It's in there. Actually, pretty much every person who wrote something in the Bible said like, it's gonna be hard, guys, come on. But trust in Christ. Self-focused leaders. I, I don't want you to distrust authority. I don't want you to uh, turn off your brains. I don't want you to not, like, I'm not trying to like, have book burning parties or something like that, but please, please use discretion. Use discernment. Think about what, what's being told you. 
Not everything on the Christian shelf in Barnes and Noble is actually Christian. In fact, some of the most damaging stuff you're going to read would probably come from the Christian shelf in the bookstore. Again, I'm not concerned that you're going to walk over and be like, hmm, Satanism, that's intriguing. Maybe I should follow Satan. I'm not worried that about you too much. I'm worried you're going to pick up some book that says God never wants you to have any trials or tribulations in your life, and you're going to believe it well, yeah, but so much of what they say is good. Yeah, well, so much of the water in Flint, Michigan was actually good water. Just a little poison stuff mixed in with it, right? Well, you know, they have a really good heart and really good intention. They're just trying to help people. Yeah, a lot of immoral people have really good intentions. Very few people wake up in the morning like, how could I harm as many people today as I possibly could? Like, they're not trying. Be discerning. Learn what good, healthy leadership looks like and be the kind of people who can both give and receive difficult words in love. Amen? But the problem's still deeper. One more level deeper. Here we go. Self-focused worship. Self-focused worship. It's not just that we live our lives for ourselves. It's not just that we become and listen to leaders who are are focused on self. It's actually at the very core of who we are in our hearts, our worship has become selfish. It started back in uh, verse 3. We were reading when it says that the mom made a carved image and a metal image, which should have set off alarm bells because in Deuteronomy 27, it says, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or a cast metal image. I like that judges said they did both. An abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. Now, what's the deal? I sound like Jerry Seinfeld. What's the deal with idols, right? Like, what, why does God hate? That was really dumb. I'll fix that sometime. What, <laughs> why, why does God hate idols so much? What's, what's the deal with statues? And what, what's, what's the problem? Can't we just make art? Can't we just, you know, isn't it cool? Listen, we need to do a little theology of image here. Let me just highlight for you what the Bible says about about image. First of all, it says that God is a spirit. The Bible teaches us that God is spirit. He's not a man. He's not like a man. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is utterly beyond us, utterly different than us. Most religious conceptions of God, pagan or, or other world religions, the idea of God um, is probably closer to what, and I, and I mean this sincerely, like superheroes, kind of super, you know, maybe immortal, you know, uh, God-like, but the Bible teaches that God is utterly different. He's beyond us. God is a spirit. It tells us that in John 4 and other places. Then we say, so, so we can't really fully like see God. We don't, we don't see him with our physical eyes, hear him with our physical ears. But number two, Romans tells us that God's attributes can be seen in nature. We can know something of what God is like because we can see his character on display in nature, his eternal qualities. God is powerful. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? That tells you that God is immense. You ever, you ever uh, like shocked yourself with electricity? Have you ever been hit by lightning? Anybody ever been hit by lightning? I've never asked that question in church before. I wanna, you know, no? But like that would tell you like God is potent and powerful. Um, you're seeing like just a beautiful sunset. Sunset last night was gorgeous. God is beautiful. I mean, we can see some of what God is like, but, but nature, notice it doesn't say that's the image of God. It just says the attributes, his, his characteristics, what God is like. If you want to know the image of God, well, you have to look at Genesis 1 where it says that God created mankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So mankind, 
Mankind is meant to be, by God's creative design, that's supposed to be that portrait, that picture of God. We, as human beings, we were created with the express purpose of showing what God is like. More than nature, we. I mean, just let the weight of that set on you for a minute. We were created in the image and likeness of God. But the problem is that fallen mankind obscures God's image. It talks about in Romans 1, it talks about people foolishly giving into sin and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. John Calvin said that we're supposed to be like mirrors who reflect God's glory, but now because of sin, we're cracked and we're broken. By the way, the image of God is not gone. It's not destroyed. It's not eviscerated, but it is damaged. And every single person here in this room today, you have all, I have, we have all fallen short of God's glory. We have not imaged him as we ought to. We have failed to live up to that for which we were designed. Like the whole reason why God created us. We didn't do it. It's like, it's like, it's a terrible analogy, but it's like, you know, when you get your kid that really special present that they've really wanted for Christmas, and then like they open it up and you put the batteries in and the darn thing is broken and it doesn't work. You know that feeling of like frustration? Well, your kids do. Actually, you do too, because then the store's closed because it's Christmas and you got to wait for a week and then there's mile long lines. And, and you, you, get the, you get the idea. It's like the disappointment of like the whole reason why this thing exists, the whole reason why we exist. And in our fallenness, the Bible calls idolatry the remaking of God in our image. So instead of us saying, oh, we were created in God's image, we are meant to reflect God, we are meant to show what God is like, we say things like, well, the God that I worship is like, and we start to take God and shape him and fashion him in our image. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul keeps talking about the exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We really do have, each and every single one of us, a self-focused worship problem. The vast majority of the problems in your lives can really be boiled down to you have a self-focused worship problem. Our sinful hearts are prone to put ourselves on the seat of God. They did it. The Danites did it. We, we read back in chapter 17 that they set up that carved image and they put it up at the house of God at Shiloh. They just said, like, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to worship God. Forget the fact that God said, no, you cannot have idols and images of me. No idol, no statue could even come close to portraying what God is really like. An idol or a statue, that's like that unflattering picture of you at the barbecue. It's a really, really, really poor representation of what God is like. It's either flat or incomplete or misleading or just flat wrong. But the Danites set up a statue we're going to set up the house of God here in Dan, in Laish. We're going to do what we want to do. Now, again, it's really hard to see the relevance in our culture, in our society, and in our day, isn't it? Dale Ralph Davis, one author that I've, I've quoted uh, multiple times, he says this, Does this not parallel the contemporary mood, even in the church, that worship is actually a very individual affair? A matter of sheer personal preference and, like your toothbrush, a very personal thing. To declare that faith, 
Worship and religion are rather regulated by royal revelation and subject to sovereign prescriptions? Well, that sounds like a novel idea. Surely contemporary Danites tell us God is not so picky. Such folks really believe that the most appropriate symbol for what we believe and how we worship should be a big blob of fat, which everyone can flop, squeeze, and shape the way he or she wants it. And that too is stupid. He's the commentator. He's got the PhD. Now think about this. The Danites let the beliefs and the opinions of culture around them drive their worship of God and their living for God. Did they not? And we could sit back and we could think, how could they possibly do that? How could they be so foolish as to not be faithful to God in the midst of all sorts of cultural pressure? Can I just say for us, as the majority of us, people who've grown up in the United States of America, our, our, our track record isn't so great. I was talking with, uh, with, with Joe recently about just the history of slavery in America and the, the tragic reality that like a, a massive amount of churches, you know, a significant, even a majority of churches defended slavery to be fair, all of those abolitionists who led the, the abolitionist movements that all men are created equal by God, black, white, otherwise, those were Christian, or Christian men and women. But it's tragic how many churches, particularly on the conservative side of things, really just dug their heels in and said, no, 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 no. This is part of our culture. This is part of our world. The economy would collapse and let's pull some verses out. We'll misuse and abuse them. And, and, uh, and uh, it's, okay to, it's okay for one human being to own another human being. On the more progressive side, there was this thing called manifest destiny. You ever heard of it? And the progressive said that we have this divine mandate from God to take over the entire continent. We're going to remove the indigenous people, the Native American, we're either going to wipe them out or we're going to move them off to reservations so they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And we have this divine mandate from God to take over the whole country. And again, verses were snatched out of context. You know, uh, most of you know my family, we, we do foster care. And in our time as foster parents, we've, we've done some study and some history on the history of foster care. Did you know that some of the first foster care type of situations recorded in the United States of America were from white people showing up to Native American families, taking their kids away from them because they didn't want the natives to raise their kids like, quote, savages. And again, churches, particularly progressive ones, would grab verses out of the Bible and say, oh, this is, this is from God. What about in our current day? I'm just blasting everybody. Let's just keep going here. Current day, I'll give you one. On the more conservative side of things, there's this thing called prosperity theology. Are you familiar with it? Where, where like Micah, we say things like, well, now I know the Lord is going to prosper me because I got a word from the man of God or the so-called guru or the prophet or the prophetess, or I read a book and they told me all these good things and these blessings are going to come my way. If I can just say enough good prayers, I can just do enough good deeds, I can somehow manipulate God and my circumstances, everything in my life is going to go great. Do you know why that is? Do you know why that message sells so much in America? Because we're prosperous. 
Like the wealthiest nation on earth. Of course, a message of you can prosper if you just do these right things. Of course, that's going to sound reasonable because the surrounding culture says so. Never mind the fact that the Bible, like in places like Hebrews, praises people who were, you know, went naked and starved and stoned to death. Like those are the heroes of the faith. Our heroes of the faith are people that drive Rolls Royce. On the more progressive side of things, liberal side of things, right now, we're seeing more and more so-called churches, Bible-believing churches, Christians, really cave into the cultural pressure on issues of gender and sexuality. The whole culture around us has decided that we're going to take the issues of sexuality and gender and we're going to do a great experiment. We're going to try some things that really haven't been tried at this level or this scale in the history of human civilization. And I'm not exaggerating or speaking hyperbolically when I say that. We're going to try some brand new things. And actually, by the way, we've, we've just come up with some new terminology. We've come up with some new ideas. And if you don't jump on board with us in the next five minutes, you are hateful and you are a bigot and you're on the wrong side of history. Now, granted, these are huge conversations that need a lot of grace, a lot of wisdom, a lot of tact, a lot of sympathy. But can we just at least acknowledge for a minute that I can't go to the grocery store to buy goldfish crackers for my kids without a big rainbow heart on it that says we celebrate pride, meaning we have to celebrate alternative views of sexuality that are contrary to what God says, that that sex is supposed to be between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman committed in the covenant of marriage for life. I can't buy goldfish crackers without being preached a message by the culture that I'm wrong. I have many, many homosexual friends, family members who I love dearly. They are human beings also created in image and likeness of God. And this is a huge conversation and a huge topic that requires much more to be said. But I simply want to point out the fact to you that churches today, conservative or liberal, are caving to cultural pressure. The issue is the same as it was thousands of years ago. The people of Dan were just repeating the same mistakes. What's the solution? What do we do? How do we hold firm? Well, I think the author of the book of Judges tells us pretty clearly. In those days, there was no king. There was no king. By the way, come back next week. If I haven't run everybody off after this sermon. We're going to see it again. It's going to be repeated two more times. There was no king. There was no leader who was leading the people towards worship of God, towards selfless living. The book of Judges... And by the way, spoiler alert, next week is um, even more terrible than this week. Uh, (laughs) It's like the great climax of the book of Judges. It's like, just kind of train going off a cliff and explodes. Um, The whole book of Judges just leaves us really wanting. There's no king. Where's the king? When's he going to come? Friends, you and I as Christians, we know that we have a king. We have a king. His name is Jesus He's the king of kings. He's the king that we needed. He's the king they needed. He's the king that we needed. Jesus is the king who, he didn't live a self-focused life. His life wasn't marked by service to self. He lived a selfless life, only doing the will of the Father, only living for God's glory. And Jesus says in Mark that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve us, to pour out his life for us, to honor God and to serve us. Isn't that amazing? And how far did he serve us? How far did he go? Well, he went all the way 
to pouring out his life on a cross, dying in our place for our sins. That is an amazing king, is it not? Instead of a leader who is opportunistic and, and selfishly living, he's, he's pouring out himself for us. And Jesus is not the selfish leader who takes from us, but he leads us in true worship of God. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest. That he's right now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's leading true worship. And all who call on his name have been given unmitigated access to God himself through Jesus, through what he did on the cross. Isn't that amazing, friends? Jesus is our true leader who lived not for his own betterment to give us salvation, forgiveness, freedom, access to God. And oh, by the way, they killed him on a cross, yes, but he rose on the third day. And anytime someone dies and on three days uh, they get back up and come back to life, you need to listen to what that person has to say. And not only that, Jesus, he's not just lived a selfless life. He not only led in a selfless way, he is himself the perfect image of the invisible God. Our scripture reading that we had from Colossians 1 said that. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The firstborn means he's preeminent in all things. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Any of those things that have power, all those kings, they're not as important as Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. If it's not for Jesus, it all falls apart. He's the head of the body, the church. That's us. That's us. He's the beginning The firstborn from the dead. Firstborn means there's going to be more born from the dead. You who trust in Jesus, though you die, Jesus says, you will rise again and you'll live forever with him. Death doesn't get the final word anymore. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, he might be preeminent for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? How did he do it? How is all of this done? By the blood of the cross. We can't have any of this without the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Just to back it up one more time, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, do you want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. That is how we know what God is like. What would God do? What would God say? How would God act? Well, God, turns out, God is the kind of God who would lay down his life for his enemies. What an amazing God we serve. Amen, friends? This is our Jesus. This is how we know what God is like. And friends, this is why we as a church are obnoxiously focused on coming back time and time again to the person and the work of Jesus. My hope and my prayer is that you, you could chuckle about it and you could see it coming from a mile away, but that you love the fact that every Sunday you're going to come here and we're going to talk about Jesus dying on a cross and rising from the tomb and how that applies to your life. Because if it's not for that, we are left, we are left with our own conceptions of God, our own ideas of God, our own selfish worship of God, but we gotta keep bringing it back to the cross of Jesus over and over and over again. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, we love you. 
We're so thankful that you're here to come with us. But I, I want to tell you in love that you have failed in that way that I said. You, you were designed by God to show what he's like. You were designed by God to image him. You haven't done it. And the good news of the cross is there is grace. There is forgiving grace. Jesus, Jesus perfectly imaged God. So where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. And we get to trust in him and we get to have the benefits of his success. So I invite you today, trust in Jesus. Not only is there forgiving grace, but there's empowering grace. Grace that changes us. Grace that works on us. Grace that makes it. So we're not like we were yesterday. Thank God for his empowering grace. Amen? I don't want to be the same dope I was three years ago. The preacher said, I was like, I, that, I look at myself five years ago. I'm like, that guy was an idiot. But the problem is, is me five years from now is going to look on me right now and say that guy was an idiot. Thank God for his empowering grace that changes us and grows us and shapes us. I want to invite all of you today to receive of God's grace, to recognize our own tendency to turn our worship and our living and our imaging of God all back on self and instead to repent of that, cry out for God's grace and say, God, I want to keep Jesus preeminent in all things. I want to know what you're like through Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I ask that even right now in this moment as we begin to turn our attention to to worshiping you, God, I pray that we would not do so in a self-focused way. God, would you be just so gracious by your Holy Spirit right now to show us where is that self-focus? Whether it's in our day-to-day living or in our leadership, places of authority and power that you've given to us, or maybe it's just in our worship itself where we've remade you into our image. God, would we be graced by your Spirit to repent right now and to cry out for your grace and then to rejoice knowing that you've given us Grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus, you are the king. We want to honor you as such. You are the king that we need. Help us to look to you, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from the dead. Help us to follow you with devotion. No No matter what everyone else is saying, help us to follow you with more pure devotion than ever before. Pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. I want to invite you to respond now in a few ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest or a visitor, uh, please don't feel obliged to give, but I, I do want to make an invitation for all to give as worship. This is not giving so that you can be hashtag blessed by God. This is giving because you are blessed by God in Christ Jesus. And we're going to do this as worshipful response, like it says in... Uh, uh, in 2 Corinthians, to give what you've decided in your heart cheerfully as worship to God. And while they're collecting your offering, let me read some questions that'll help us have discussions in our uh, community groups and homes this week. Where in your life are you prone to one of those three problems we identified? Selfish living, selfish leadership, and selfish worship. What's God asking you to do about it? Why are humans, we, so prone to reimagine God in our image instead of seeing him as he's supposed to be? Um, how can we help one another worship God for who he truly is? Number three, I want you guys to do a little Bible study. Read uh, Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.3, John 1.14 and 12.45 and consider Jesus the perfect uh, image of the invisible God. 
How does this truth encourage and challenge you? And then uh, if we really saw Jesus as that perfect image of God, how would this impact your daily choices and the practical things in your life? And then we want to be a praying church, so I invite you to pray. Read John 4, 23 through 24, and ask God to help us as Christians to really worship him in spirit and truth, to worship him as he should be worshiped, not as we want to worship him. And then I want you to pray for people who don't know Jesus, people in your life, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Pray for opportunities to show them what God is like, yes, through your living, but, but through the message of Jesus. That's what God's like, through Jesus. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. This is for Christians. As they hand out the elements, I'll invite you to hold this. And, 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 and in a minute when the musicians begin to lead us in song, you can take the Lord's table and, and celebrate. And then uh, when you're ready, stand to your feet. But I want to read this from 1 Corinthians 11. Again, just focusing us in on Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's God like? He's the kind of God that has his body broken and his blood shed for you. For you. Notice how it says, for you. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. So there's an opportunity to pray and examine and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I'm going to pray, give you a moment to do just that, to examine your heart. God, where's their selfishness? And then, uh, then you can eat and drink and we'll stand and sing. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for your grace your grace that transforms us and your grace that empowers us to live new lives. God, we want to come with hearts today uh, repentant of self-focused in our lives, in our worship, and in our leadership. God, I pray right now that you would just do that loving work of conviction in our lives. I pray against condemnation from the enemy, that, a, that voice that says, see how no good you are, see how there's no hope for you. We pray against that. God, we want that conviction from the Spirit that leads us in hope to the grace that's given to us in Jesus. Help us now as we celebrate the table, as we worship and sing and pray. May it all be done for the glory of Jesus, our great King. In his name we pray, amen.